How many of you this morning are ready for the Word of God? Amen. Amen. Well, I got the, uh, the pleasure to, uh, to continue our, uh, our series that Pastor Jeff started last week called Regroup. Uh, if you're taking notes, please, uh, I'd have you maybe write down, Falling in Love Again. Falling in Love Again. <laughs> now, I, I, any married person in this room, okay, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> For those of you who are married in the room, did you, did you find it hard to fall in love with your spouse? <laughs> Somebody in the back, yep. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to be really honest with you. I'm going to be really honest with you. I, I did not find it difficult to fall in love. Um, you know, I think, I think I probably fell in love with my wife uh, the moment that I was like looking at her while she was worshiping, and I should have also been worshiping, but instead I was just looking at her. Um, and then we really fell in love on MySpace, because we like, there was a lot, there was a lot of correspondence on MySpace. It's got a real special place in my heart. Tom, thank you. Um, but, but, you know, the interesting thing is, is that as easy as it was to fall in love, I think, I think some of us get tricked because the, the, the reality is, is that falling love is falling in love is fairly easy. Staying in love is an exercise. Like most married people, like people that, have, that are in successful marriages will tell you that if you're going to stay in love with someone, you are going to have to do a lot of work. Like, it doesn't mean that your spouse is any less worthy of love now than they were when you first fell in love with them. But the reality is, is that it's kind of easy to start a flame. It's a little bit more difficult to keep one going. You know, if you were to look up today the top five, top ten reasons for divorce, you know, you'd, you'd find some that are, uh, that are a lot more understandable than others. But one of the, one of them that's in the top five that, that, that's hard sometimes for people that have never fallen out of love or have, have really kept the fire going is that there is a, one of the top five reasons is, is kind of this indiscernible feeling of no longer being in love. That at the core of every argument, the core of every difficulty, the core of every problem is just the real basic fact that I just don't love you anymore. Now that's a hard for a lot of us to hear because we're like, how's that possible? First of all, I'm going to tell you, this is not a sermon about marriage. Just in case the single people in the room are like, oh my gosh, here we go. <laughs> this actually isn't a sermon about marriage. You know, when I was growing up, uh, especially like later on in high school, we moved to, uh, we moved from Okanagan, Washington to McCall, Idaho. Uh, Okanagan is a place that, uh, it kind of gets cold in the winter time, but you know, you, you get, you get maybe two, three inches of snow. You know, in a really bad year, you might get a foot. I moved from that place where I was golfing by the end of February. Man, I just missed those days. Anyway. I was golfing by the end of February to a place that gets like an average of like eight or nine feet of snow a year, and it doesn't melt off until mid-June. And I also went from having central air to, going, to, to, to moving into a house that was primarily heated by a very old, not very good wood stove. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you. I have a deep place in my spirit for wood-heated homes, okay? I live, I live now in a place that has a gas fireplace. It is not the same. 
I could stand in the middle of winter, I could stand in front of my gas fireplace, like my skin crisping off from heat, and internally I'd just be like, I'm still cold. Like, but something about wood heat just gets into your bones, you know what I mean? Anyway, but I remember, especially early on in the, like in the, in the late fall or, or late, kind of in the late spring, when you kind of, it's not as cold anymore, it's not 20 degrees, it's not 15 degrees, it's like you wake up and it's 40 degrees. And as a 16-year-old, I had a choice to make. Because the problem with that wood stove is that no matter what you did, because of how old and creaky and dilapidated it was, that thing would not hold coals through the entire night. So there was no real possibility of waking up in the morning, throwing some wood on it, blowing on the fire, and lighting it up. I had a choice to make every morning. The choice was, is the heat worth the work? On those mornings where you're not quite sure, you're like, ah, maybe I could just grab an extra blanket and just walk around the house a little bit. You know, is it, is it worth the work? Because the reality is, is that there were moments as a 16-year-old where my dad wasn't the one that was telling me I had to do these things, that I was making those decisions for myself. And that's a difficult decision to make when you're 16 and your general time of waking up is noon. But you know, as I was, as I was thinking about that, you know, as I putting this message together, it occurred to me that a lot of people are having that same thought about the church right now. Is the heat worth the work? Listen, we all know the reasons that people fall out of love with the church. You know, I grew up, uh, many of you, you know, have, have been here long enough to, <laughs> to hear my testimony growing up in an incredibly wild, charismatic church. I loved church when I, when I was growing up. I, I, just, uh, I just sort of assumed that everyone was as crazy as we were, and so it was, wasn't really crazy, you know? Um, I, I, I loved coming to church because uh, a couple reasons. People were really wild, and it was, it's, it, you know, if, there's something about watching an adult do something that's ridiculous. That as a kid, you're just like, this is amazing. We used to have this guy, there was this, I think his name was Irvin. Anyway, he was like an old hippie, right? Like picture, picture a guy who's like six foot seven, six foot eight, just a huge guy, right? Crazy long, greasy hair, looked like he literally just came out of the Jesus movement like yesterday. And like he would stand right over here. He would kick his shoes off every Sunday morning and he would dance in the wildest like fashion I've ever seen. I've never, to this day, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody do the whirl and twirl like Irvin did. I loved coming to church. But there was, t- I mean, I-, I used to see God do incredible things, right? And then also because the adults were kind of crazy and they got wild. And it was fun. Like there was something about church for me. I didn't have to choose to fall in love with the church. I just was in a great church. But here's the thing. It was easy to fall in love because I didn't realize I was doing it. But later on, I got hurt. How many of you in here have ever been hurt in church? Can I, can I just dispel some myths here? If you've been hurt in church, that is not abnormal. Can I tell you why? Because people are here. People are here. People are going to hurt you. Leaders, unfortunately, are going to hurt you. And it's, it's a bummer when it happens, but I, I, I got to tell somebody in the room, I have been hurt a lot in church. 
I can't, you know, honestly, I'll, there's some of this stuff that I'm probably, you know, every, every, every service that I preach tends to be slightly different. Even sometimes when I get up here, I'm like thinking to myself, man, what am I going to say this time? Like, sometimes stuff just comes out of my mouth. I'm like, wow, did I say that? Yikes. Okay. But <laughs> there was a point in my life, there was a point in my life where I went to a church that, that I absolutely fell in love with. And then I got really, really hurt. And I spent, I spent the better part of the next two years that every church that I went into, you know, in the past, I used to go to go into churches and just be excited about what God was doing. But during that period of time when I would go to a church, it's like I couldn't see anything good about the church. No matter where I was, no matter what denomination, what stream, I always found something that kept me from coming back. And what I thought at the time, what I thought was that it was because the church was so flawed. It was because the church was this. It was because the church was that. And of course, at 21 years old, I have all the answers. But over the course of time, what the Lord taught me is He said, look, son, the problem is not the churches. The problem is you. See, because what happens is... Thomas, can I use you as an example? Hop up here. Just do it right in front here. See, wounding in the church, or it's in any, any, any kind of wound that goes really deep. I didn't just hurt Thomas. What I did was I also handed him a lens. Go ahead and put those on, Thomas. What do you see? little blurry. He, he does look great, right? See, the thing is, is that when Thomas, when Thomas receives a wound in a place that he assumed was safe, oh, somebody needs to hear that, in a place that he assumed was safe, not only does he have, now have to deal with the wound that's on his spirit. Sorry, I'm like squinting to see you all. You see the kind of sacrifices I make for you? Anyway. <laughs> See, when, when Thomas receives a wound from a place that he assumed was safe, it doesn't just come with a wound, it comes with glasses. It comes with a new lens that now colors the way that he sees all of his experiences, not just going forward, but in the past as well. Now take those glasses, bro. Thank you very much. That's, I actually literally need them back. <laughs> See, the problem is, is that even after that time, what I began to do is despite the fact that I had precious memories of things that God did in my life when I was growing up, I actually, my wounding poisoned the well of my past to where I couldn't look back on it and say, man, God did some incredible things back then. I began to see it. I began to see it with a whole different lens where instead of looking at my history with God and saying the Lord did incredible things, I looked at it and said, wow, that church had a lot of issues too. I just didn't see it. What it did, though, is that it robbed me, not just of my history with God, but my future. Man, i got to tell somebody in the room, number one, getting hurt in church does not negate your history with God. It doesn't make what God did in your life before you got wounded any less powerful or precious or incredible. And I, I really feel like, I'm kind of hitting this a little harder in this, this particular service, I really feel like this, today I want to call some people out of a place of wounding. Somebody in the room needs to hear, you are not a victim. You're not a victim. You may have been victimized, but you are not a victim. I can't do a thing about what's happened to me in church aside from the fact that I can choose 
what I do with myself. I can't control what happened to me, but I can control what I do with what happened to me. Does that make sense? Listen, friend, you are not a victim. We are more than conquerors. You know, one of the one of the positive things that I'm that I'm seeing in this, you know, in this season coming out of, you know, coming out of the um, the, the pandemic and all of that is we're seeing a lot of people that are that are starting to reawaken to the beauty of gathering. Like not just in not just in like large church or but like even in small groups. I mean back you know, back in 2019, 15 years ago. <laughs> doesn't it feel like that? Doesn't it feel like it's been like 18 years that we've been in this like weird, crazy thing? 2019 feels like, you know, like I was like, anyway, back in, back in, uh, you know, the good old days of 2019, it's like we, we, we went through like all sorts of stuff to get out of as much possible social interaction as we could, right? Somebody like texts you and cancels and you're just like, oh, thank God. And then you text them back, you're like, no problem, bro. We'll just put something else on the calendar. Like, anyway. Now we're just trying to find, you know, like places that we can gather where people aren't going to judge us or ask us weird, awkward questions, right? But the thing is, how many of you are intellectually aware that working out is good for you? Yes, we're intellectually aware of this, right? Can I tell you that being intellectually aware does not produce passion? Being intellectually aware that I should be working out does not produce a passion within me to work out. I really wish it was that simple, but it's not. See, there are a lot of us that are spiritually or intellectually aware that we should be gathering together as the body of Christ. And yet, that does not, that knowledge, that understanding does not produce the kind of passion that we actually want to have to do it. How many of you feel, you don't have to raise your hand on this one, how many of you feel like you have come to church begrudgingly? Doesn't that feeling just bother you? Like, it just bothers you that you're just like, I got a little church. What if I told you that it's possible to light the fire again? And I don't mean that in like a Pentecostal way where we're like, I'm talking about like lighting the fire and like, I mean, literally, it's possible for you to fall in love with the church again. I don't just mean church. Sunday mornings. I'm talking about being in love with the people of God. Because I'll be honest with you, like we, am I wrong? Can we be a fairly unlovely people sometimes? It is not difficult to fall out of love with unlovely people, but it's possible to fall back in love with them. Listen. As with like any discipline out there, the goal is typically the motivating factor. For example, you decide that you're going to start working out more. Well, if your goal is just to feel better, what happens when you pull a muscle? What happens when you wake up after two days in the gym and you've lifted too hard and you're so sore that you can barely roll out of bed? See, if your goal, if your goal is to feel better as opposed to get healthy, then you are going to be dominated by how you feel. You're going you're gonna to change your direction based on whatever is internally going on within you. If your goal in coming to church is to be entertained, 
this probably ain't the place for you, dog. Really, I got to tell you, really early on in ministry, when I was in, when I was in youth ministry, I realized that I will never be able to entertain students as well as an Xbox can. No matter how crazy my circus is, I am not going to be able to entertain kids the way that they are used to being entertained, so I didn't even try. Because the purpose of coming to youth group, in my opinion, was not entertainment, it was Jesus. Like, you either want to come here and get to know the Lord and get wrecked in His presence, or there's another place down the road that probably plays Chubby Bunny. I don't know. You guys know what Chubby Bunny is? Okay. You know what's funny? Until I got in youth ministry, I didn't know what that was either. And then when I found out, I was like, why do people play this game, man? Brutal. Listen, my job on Sunday mornings, I, I, I'll be honest with you, Mo, like... I'm not a very entertaining guy. Like, I got a few jokes here and there, but like, most of them are dad humor now. Like, I used to be funny. And then I started using dad humor ironically. And then it became my only humor. It's like ironically wearing cargo pants. Like, eventually, you're just a dude that wears cargo pants. Sorry, I hit, I hit on cargo pants a couple times weekends in a row. Jason's over there like, oh, what about cargo shorts, man? Yeah, they're still hip, bro. They're still hip. Oh, man. So I'm not here to entertain you. I hope you're not here to be entertained, right? But you know what? I'm also not here to make you feel good. Because if you're guided, if you're motivated to come to church based upon how you feel, what happens when I offend you? What happens when I say something that's outside of your theological box? What happens if I actually teach the Word of God and it kind of hits you somewhere? Like you start feeling some kind of way at me and you just came here to get, you know, built up. Well, friend, I can tell you before I got saved, I was offended. Dude, honestly, how many of you people in here realize the gospel is offensive? It's supposed to offend you. It offends the conscience because you, because most of us, what we've done is our entire lives, we have, we have tried to work our conscience around, you know, around various moral principles that tell us that we are a good person who generally does good things. And then we hear the true unadulterated gospel that is anything but that. And we get offended because it's offending our whole framework of intellectual composition. When I get offended, if my goal to come to church is to feel good, the moment anything offends me, I gotta leave. Because, hey, that pastor's mean. (laughs) Our goal isn't feelings, it's Jesus. In fact, I I think I taught on this maybe a few months ago, but I want to remind you, you are not here for you. Some Some of us have been taught that we go to church to you know, to learn how to, how to live better. We, or we go to church because we, we, we want to be around God's people, or we go to church for this, or we go to church for that. Friend, i got to tell you that the primary mission and purpose of the church is exalting Jesus. That is the primary reason that we gather on a Sunday morning. We don't gather around someone's feelings. We don't gather around, if I'm honest with you, we don't gather around music. We don't gather around a person's gift. We gather around the presence of God. The church is for Him, not for me. 
So I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk about a goal. Like, what are some, if we're talking about church, what is the goal of church? I'm going to give you three things we're going to talk about this morning. Number one, the presence of God in assembly. The presence of God in assembly. Some of you are like, yeah, presence of God. And then I said in assembly, and you're like, whoa, hang on. What do you mean? I can meet God out in the woods. Good for you, man, that you can meet God out in the woods. That's great. Thing is, the Bible doesn't instruct me to meet the presence of God in the woods. He instructs me to meet the presence of God in the assembly. Now, do I think you should be able to meet the presence of God out in the woods? Absolutely. But that's not our primary place. How many of you recognize that God could meet you anywhere? How many of you also recognize He doesn't? Can I tell you why? Because He does whatever He wants. He doesn't do what I want. He does what He wants. And what He wants is that it's really interesting. We believe, like theologically, that God is everywhere at once or at least can be, right? Like that's the whole concept of omnipresence. And yet, what we see in Scripture so many times is that God tells people to go to places so that He can meet with them. Like for example, we're going to talk about Elijah here in just a second. I'm going to give you a little bit of context before we get into this, this passage of Scripture. This is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. This is right after Elijah has challenged the prophets of Baal, then the prophets of Asherah, basically to a whose God is powerful and whose God is dead kind of, you know, thing. You know, for those of you who don't think that sarcasm should be a part of a Christian's, you know, vocabulary, I'd like to point you to 1 Kings 18 in which Elijah is literally mocking the prophets of Baal by telling him, hey, maybe your God's on the John. Yell a little bit louder. It's really working. But what happens here is that Elijah, Elijah has this moment that probably, if, if, we were to, if we were to take Elijah like to a counselor, he would probably at this point be diagnosed with depression. He goes from this literal mountaintop experience, probably the greatest moment of his ministry. And then, because of disappointment in how Ahab and Jezebel took you know, all of the stuff that happened, he runs. The same guy that stood up in front of an entire... Think, just think about this for a moment. The same guy that stood up in front of an entire nation of hostile people ran because one woman got angry at him. Here's a little lesson. You don't always have to be perfect in the service of God. And also, I'd also like to point out that God does actually, he does, he does ask Elijah what he's doing here. Like when Elijah runs, he's depressed, he literally asks the Lord to kill him. So Elijah, Elijah goes from a crazy high ministry moment to suicidal, essentially, in the next moment. God doesn't say, wow, you are so weak, Elijah. How could you go from such a high success to such a low, low? He just asks him, hey man, what are you doing here? He doesn't get mad at him for his weakness. He doesn't beat him up for the fact that he was having maybe some dealing with some mental illness. God was there for him. I got to tell somebody in the room that's dealing with some mental illness issues, God's not mad at you because you're depressed. He doesn't judge you for your anxiety. He's here for you. 
Because that's what he does. See, what we do is we judge people. We tell people that are depressed, oh, just have the joy of the Lord, bro. Nailed it, guy. God doesn't do that. God's actually here for you. He cares about your state. He doesn't shame you when you don't do the right things. He helps you out of it, actually. But see, here's the story. Interestingly enough, so here's the Lord. The angel of the Lord literally shows up at his like little camp. And he, he says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah tells him literally at this moment, this is 30 days, 30 days before what we're about to read happened. He says the exact same thing to the Lord. He tells him, listen, I'm the only guy left. Nobody else loves you. Everyone else is the worst. I'm the only good one. Essentially, I mean, that's basically what Elijah says here. Here's what the angel says to him. First, he tells him to take a nap. Secondly, some of you guys just take a nap, okay? Secondly, he gives him food. Then he wakes up and he feeds him again. But then he tells him, now I want you to go to the mountain of God, which was Mount Horeb. Okay, he had a 30-day journey just so that God could ask him the exact same question. Why? Because he wanted to. Because God meets people in places whether you like it or not. He can meet you anywhere. But where he wants to meet you is where he wants to meet you. Does that make sense? Listen to this. This is uh, 1 Kings 19, verses 14 to 18. So this is the second time. This is when Elijah is now at the mountain. He asks the Lord, the Lord asks him what he's doing here. This is his reply. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, oh man, Elijah, you just had it really rough, bro. You're right. You're the only good one left. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. It says, then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mehalah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. Listen, but I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Somebody in the room needs to know, isolation is a liar. So here's Elijah. Arguably, I mean, I don't even know if it's arguably. At this point in time, he is at least the only leader in Israel who's really still following the covenants of God. And in his isolation, in his isolation, he became convinced that he was the only person left that still followed the Lord. So when he complains to God about being the only pure-hearted one out there, God tells him, dude, you're not even close. There are 7,000 other people that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Listen to this. What I'm saying is even in an apostate nation, completely apostate, there were still significantly more people that loved God than Elijah thought. Here's the challenge that I have to the person in the room that believes 
The church needs all sorts of reform and all of these kinds of things because you're the only one that's still fired up for the Lord. I have got to tell you that isolation has lied to you. Isolation has lied to you. You know, I, I mentioned Caleb Weeson in the first service. Um, Caleb and, and Amanda and their family have been coming to our church now for several years. And, you know, my, most of my work is, is with young adults and, and youth. And so it's only been the last couple of years that I've really gotten to know a lot more of, you know, the adult congregation. I just sort of assumed that Caleb was kind of a nice guy. He is a nice guy. I mean, Johnny over here is a nice guy, right? I mean, but the thing is, is that if I don't know Johnny, if I don't know Caleb, if I've never had real conversations with him about what God's doing in their life, what, you know, what do they, what do they see for their future? I, I'm, I'm not ever really going to know what kind of passion they have aside from just basic assumptions about people. The reality is, is that if we allow ourselves to get isolated to the point where we're not getting to know people, we're not hearing their heart, we're not hearing their passion, our assumption is I'm the only passionate person here. And so I, I sit down with Caleb, and, and he and I are just talking about the things of God, and I'm like, man, this dude's fired up. We're like talking about like healings and signs and wonders and things that God has done in his life and through him, and I'm just like, boy, I'll be honest with you, kind of just thought you were like a lumberjack. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my assumption about people, it, it was it was very. I mean, guys, can I be transparent with you today? Is that okay? Leaders don't have like this like tremendous insight about every single person that walks through the doors. I still have to do the work of relationship too. But I got to be honest with you and tell you that if your perspective is that you're the only person that goes after the Lord in you know in the church and that you are the only remnant that God is raising up, friend, my assumption is you just don't know many people in the church. Sorry. It's easy to assume that you're better than everybody else when you know no one else. And that's what Elijah did. Even in an apostate nation like Israel, there were so many more people that loved God than Elijah knew about that the way that God pulled him, Johnny, the way he pulled him out of his depression was to say, hey, you're not alone. You still need community. Even in an apostate nation, you still need to understand that there are people pursuing the same goals that you're pursuing. You're not alone. Here's the big idea. Even the most mature believers can listen to a lie that they assume is discernment. See, Elijah had discerned that he was all that was left. Can I tell you, I, I, okay, I need to tell somebody in the room here. Your discernment is not perfect. You do not hear perfectly from God. And if your discernment is trying to tell you that every single person in the church or every person in this church or every person in that church or whatever is bad or, or not fired up or not passionate, not about the kingdom of God, not about the things of God, friend, i got to tell you, you probably just don't know that many people. Isolation is a liar. Number two. The preached Word. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, when I was a kid, I, I kind of wondered why the Scriptures didn't give us a really laid out 
way that church services were supposed to be handled. Like, why not have a prescription in the Scriptures that says, you do three songs, then you send the kids out. You do a fourth song, then you do a tag, and you do that tag 18 times if you're Pentecostal. <laughs> why didn't we have that, right? But as I, you know, as I, as I gotten older and, and as I've become a leader in the church, I've recognized it's a blessing that God didn't tell us exactly how things should be done, but He did give us an outline of what Christians ought to be doing if they want to grow. One of them, listen to this, is devotion to the apostles' teachings. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. Now, in the early church, what we would say is that that was literally listening to the apostles teach. For the most part, the written, uh, the, the, the written New Testament didn't really even come into focus until probably the 60 or 70 AD for the most part. Which means there was a 30-year span in which the idea of being devoted to the apostles' teaching, what it really meant was listening to the apostles themselves teach. Listen to church leaders teach. Can I tell you why? How many of you completely understand your Bible? Oh good, nobody raised their hand. Thank you for that. Listen, I've mentioned this before and it feels like whenever I do, somebody like gets their mind blown or something. How many of you realize literacy, like across the board in America, has only been a thing for like 150 years? Which means... For approximately 1,800 years of the church, the vast majority of our understanding about God and Scripture did not come from a daily devotional where you listen to music in the background and you've got your Beth Moore book here and you've got your Jesus is Calling book here and you've got your Bible here and you take a picture of it on, you know, to put up on Instagram so everybody knows that you're super spiritual. It didn't happen that way. The vast majority of everything that we knew about God came specifically straight from church leaders. Now, I'm not saying that that's the right way to go about doing things. I think it's fantastic that we all have access to Scripture now. But what I'd also like to point out is that there has to be a point in your, like, in your week in which you are being taught and instructed by people who God has actually anointed and authorized to do so. Can I, like, there's, a, there's a, a quote from a theologian's name is Gordon Fee, and what he said was this. He said, a scripture or a text cannot mean what it never meant. Which means that a lot of us, what we do is we read scripture and not knowing the context, not knowing the history, not knowing who it was written to or why, we just sort of just take it and imbibe it as though that's what that scripture actually means. Jeremiah 29.11 doesn't mean what you think it means. Isaiah 61 doesn't mean what you think it means. A lot of these, a lot of these verses, what we've done is we've taken them entirely out of context. And by not putting ourselves under sound Bible teaching, we have believed things that the scripture teaches as though they were teaching them a different way. A text cannot mean what it never meant. God has appointed the preached word to the church as a weapon against darkness. And as a weapon against confusion. Isn't that crazy? You ever thought about that? Like of all the ways that we could learn in the 21st century. Are we in the 21st century? Is the 22nd century now? Nice, 21st century. <laughs> I should have Googled that. Of all the ways that we could learn in the 21st century, the church still holds on to preaching. And it's because God chooses the foolish things and He gives them His power. 
So maybe the better question would be, in an era where you can listen to anyone, why listen to us? I mean, like, I've mentioned this before, and maybe somebody took me up on it, but, I mean, guys, you could walk out the door right now. Like, you could stand, I'm not saying, please, please don't, that would be really weird and embarrassing for me, but you could stand up right now, you could walk out those doors, jump on YouTube, and you could, you have access to some of the most incredible communicators in the world. You could absolutely do that. You could get significantly better preaching from the comfort of your own home by just sitting down and throwing YouTube on. Absolutely. The thing is, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to other preachers by any stretch of the imagination. But there's a reason why I believe that even if you're listening to a lot of Matt Chandler or T.D. Jakes or Stephen Furtick or, you know, insert whatever Bible teacher you like, even if you're listening to a lot of these guys, I would still encourage you to be part of the local assembly. Why? Because what is preached from this pulpit is prophetic for this community. Listen, I listen to a lot of Mark Driscoll, but Mark Driscoll is not my pastor. You know why? I've literally never met Mark Driscoll. If I wanted to talk to him, I couldn't. If I wanted his help with something, I probably couldn't get it. One time I, I, I was trying to see what it would take to bring Mark in on a Sunday morning. I found out that he's booked out for like three years on Sunday mornings. But he was cool coming in for a Tuesday night. Like, no, yeah, no, no thing on Mark Driscoll. I love the guy. The point is, his availability is not there. Therefore, he's not my pastor. He doesn't know my situation. He doesn't know what's going on in my walk. He has no idea what's going on in Newport, Priest River, Old Town. He cannot be my pastor because he's not in my community. When people tell me crazy things like, oh yeah, you know, I listen to so-and-so all the time. He's my pastor. Bro, no, he's not. He doesn't know you exist. In the local assembly, we are pastored by people who know us. Now, that doesn't mean they have to know all of our story before we allow them to preach into our lives. However, the point is, is we don't just randomly pick topics. Like when Pastor Jeff and Pastor Stephen and myself and Pastor John sit down and talk about what we, what we, we believe that the Lord is, is saying to our church, we don't just like, you know, play like spiritual roulette and flip open a Bible and say, okay, you know what? Lamentations. That's what we're doing for the next 18 weeks. No, because we actually listen to the Holy Spirit and He tells us what we need to be preaching on for our community. Does that make sense? The local assembly is so important for your life, but specifically, again, like I said, it's not about the quality of preaching you receive. It's about the fact that what you receive from here is for here. Now, other people can listen from out of town and out of other places, and yeah, I'm sure that they're going to get something out of it, but in the same... You almost got me preaching, y'all. Okay. Listen, I can love these men and women that I listen to, but I also have to realize that is not my pastor and that's not my leader. Number three, submission to the will of God. Submission to the will of God. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Can I be like just kind of transparent from my perspective? So when I went through that season of just being very critical with the church, I realized I had gone to church so much as a kid 
that I had not realized I was being, I was habitually being brought, I was being taught a habit. You know what the hardest thing about getting out of that season was? Being determined to be in the building every Sunday. You know why it was hard? Because developing habits is hard. Developing good habits is especially hard. Developing bad habits, actually not as difficult as you would think. Eating way too many pizza rolls, not as difficult as you would imagine. But creating and developing good habits is very difficult. Listen, there are a lot of people that would love to come back to church, but for whatever reason, they don't realize, you can't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I'm going to probably just start going to church until the day I die now. Every Sunday. No, that's not how it works. It's going to take some time to reestablish a good habit. I'll be honest with you, a lot of us have, 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 have tripped into a pattern where we go to church when it's convenient. We gather with the assembly, you know, once a month, twice a month maybe, as long as there's no football on, Seahawks aren't playing at 10, as long as Seahawks aren't playing at 10, I'll be there. As long as it's not hunting season, Pastor. As long as it's not fishing season. Friend, whatever your hobby is, can I tell you, there's always a season. There's always, there's always going to be a really good reason to get out of the habit of being part of the local assembly. But all of your really good reasons, can I tell you what the best reason to come to church is? Listen, I could stand up here like Pastor Jeff was talking about last week. I could stand up here and I could, I could go through all the benefits, you know, oh, health and long life and you know, all this kind of stuff that we know scientifically. The science is settled, okay? Like, we know that there are benefits to coming to church. But can I tell you that if I, if I sell you on benefits, then the, the, the morning you're not feeling it, you're not going to come back next week. If I sell you, if I sell you on, this is why you should be in church, because you're going to be a better person. What happens when you leave and you're not a better person? So instead of selling you on that, what I'll sell you on is the fact that you are not your own. You're bought. All throughout Scripture, especially in New Testament, we are commanded to gather. Yeah, there are a lot of great reasons to come to church, but the primary one is that God told us to. And when God says it, we obey. See, can I tell you one thing that's difficult about the American system is that we have a very individualistic understanding of freedom. Freedom in America is, I do what I want, right? Like I say what I want because free speech. I vote how I want. I eat what I want. I go to Golden Corral three times a week. Early bird special, man. It's a real thing. I actually don't go to Golden Corral. Anyway. But can I tell you that that's actually the opposite of freedom in Scripture. I am the most free when I'm obedient. I am the most free when I'm under his will. I am the most free when I'm obeying his commands. I am the most free that I'll ever be when I recognize that the fence around my life isn't to keep me from all the great things that are on the other side of it, but rather to keep the bad things from coming in. I am the most free when I'm under his will. And if his will for me is to gather with his people, then I can't continue to say, Oh, those church people, man. And all those pastors, Ruth, all those pastors want, they just want tithes. 
That's all they care about. <laughs> Come on, man. Obedience is the language of faith. Pretty simple. Obedience is the language of faith. I'm, I literally show my faith in Jesus by my obedience to what he's told me. If I find myself oh, disobeying more often than I obey, then actually what I'm evidencing is that I really don't believe that much. Submission to the will of God is the primary reason that we show up. Because he's told us to. I know that sounds like a really simplistic answer, and maybe, maybe in, Jason, in, you know, in today's culture of you know, the 18 different ways to do this and the 25 different ways to do that, maybe this is an insufficient answer, but I'm telling you it's the best one. Because when I'm in his will, that's where the blessing happens. When I'm in his will, that's where the freedom happens. When I'm in his will, that's where the breakthrough happens. When I'm in his will, that's where the healing happens. When I'm in his will, do you feel where I'm going with this? When I'm in his will, all the things that I've been wanting come my way because he can't stop being who he is. He is freedom. He is breakthrough. He is healing. He doesn't just have it. He is it. He is contentment. He is joy. He is everything that I'm wanting and everything that I'm needing. And the thing is, all I really have to do is be under. He commands us to gather, to remember what he's done for us, to celebrate his goodness and to sharpen each other. Listen, Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Listen, this is your true worship. This is your true worship. <laughs> Listen, I'm, 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 I'm all about Davidic worship as much as the next guy. If you don't know what that meant, that means dancing, clapping, shouting. Like these are the things we see in the book of Psalms. That's why we encourage people to practice them because... Our, can I just rant one second? 30 seconds. Our worship is not amorphous. There's actually nothing in Scripture that says we can just worship however we want to. What's really interesting is, is there's an entire book in Scripture that tells us how to worship. It's called Psalms. Psalms isn't just Proverbs. It's not just, you know, it's not just like poetry. It's actually informative and instructive. That's why when we encourage people to clap their hands, we're not doing something extra biblical. It's like literally right there. When we encourage people, you can dance or you can shout. It's because we actually see all these things in the book of Psalms. But see, here's the thing. As much as I'm all about Davidic worship, what I can tell you is that I can be worshiping and still be inauthentic. I can, maybe put it a different way, I can be worshiping and not worshiping. Because actually, Romans tells me that my true worship is to present myself as though I don't belong to me. That's my true worship. That's the higher form. The higher form of worship is actually doing what God has told me to do. It's actually giving my whole heart to him. My, my, my greatest form of worship is being obedient to him even unto death. That's my greatest form of worship. It's the reason why I, 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 I kind of hit this one last is because ultimately all of this other stuff is, is important, but I want to remind you that you are bought. You are blood-bought for that matter, which means that Jesus, by his blood not only forgave you and made a way for you, but when you said yes to him, he purchased you with that costly blood, with that sacrifice. He bought your will. Maybe I'll put it to you that way. He bought your mind. 
He didn't just buy your body. He didn't just buy your person. He bought the, he bought the right to tell you how you should think. Does that make sense? See, we hate that in America. We hate this idea that somebody can tell me what I should think. What I'm telling you is that's what the scripture tells us is that when I disagree with scripture, I'm wrong. When I disagree with what God has said, I'm wrong. No equivocation. Literally, the science is settled. When I have decided that I don't want to obey, I'm wrong. I'm not free. I'm wrong. (laughs) I'm only free when I'm in the will of the Father. Listen, despite my hurts, my own brokenness, I tell you, I have been convinced to fall in love with the church, not just because it's what Jesus loves, not just because I lead it, because I have to be honest with you guys, being a leader in church doesn't actually like firewall you from having to be in love with the church. Can I be really transparent? There are a lot of people that are really hard to work with. Straight up. I mean, I'm one of them, to be frank. I mean, I can be very difficult to work with. I'm a very strong-willed person. But I tell you, the reason that I love the church isn't just because it's what God loves. See, that's, a, like, that's the easiest. I'd be like, Jason, that's such a like, low-hanging fruit. Like, you've got to love the church because that's what Jesus loves. You know, that's probably true, okay? But can I also tell you that I've been convinced by world history, I've been convinced by church history, and I've been convinced by personal history that the church is what Jesus loves. It's what he's building. It's what he empowers. It's what he gets behind. It's what he blesses. And it's what he's using right now to change the world. I don't just love the church because Jesus loves it. I love the church because Jesus breathes on it. Listen, man, I've been hurt in church. The enemy wants you to believe that all churches are the same and that all believers are the same. Listen, one of the hottest debates in culture right now is who has the best chicken sandwich. Those of you who thought Popeyes, I rebuke that Jesus. Listen, you know what's the funny thing about chicken joints, Jason? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just, you're my guy. You know, the funny thing about chicken joints is they all sell chicken. Do you notice that? Like the general requisite thing that you have to have to be a chicken joint is that you sell chicken. What's the difference? The difference is seasoning and preparation, but it's the same thing right? Like you could go to 18 different chicken joints and get a chicken sandwich and it would look kind of similar because it's all chicken and it's all in a sandwich. There are requisite things that you have to have to be a chicken joint. Listen, churches are like that. We've all got the gospel. We just season it a little differently. If this isn't your bucket, you don't have to be here. But I would encourage you, don't believe for a second that just because we do something some way that everybody does it that way too. There are so many places that you could be fellowshipping. What I'm telling you is don't throw chicken out with the bathwater. If this isn't for you, go somewhere else that sells chicken. Listen, guys, I know falling, love, falling in love with the church is like, it's, it's, it's not, oh man, how do I put this? It's not easy. And you know what? It's really not sexy either. It's not. It's, it's not something, you know, like there are so many things right now, especially in marriages where, where people are, 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 are hearing, well, once you fall out of love, just be done. Just like just get it over with. Just cut it off and, you know, and call it a day. Listen, I get that it's countercultural. You know what else is countercultural? 
loving your wife until the day you die. That's countercultural. You know what else is countercultural? Not abusing substances. You know what else is countercultural? Not viewing pornography. You know what else is countercultural? I mean, I could go down a laundry list of things that, that, that the Christian faith is a counterculture movement. We do hard things. Man, it's not easy sometimes to fall back in love with the church, but it's worth it. That's what I'll tell you. If you're tired of coming to church begrudgingly, maybe, maybe you're here literally for the first time, and this is like the first time you've stepped into a church in a really long time. I want you to know, for those of you who have really experienced church hurt, from first-hand experience, I can tell you that healing is available for you. You don't have to be the walking wounded anymore. You don't have to feel like you're the most cynical person in the room. You don't have to feel like you don't have to feel like this is going to be your testimony forever. You know, can I can I tell you can I tell you what kind of got me on the road to healing? It was one particular Sunday and um, this one particular Sunday that I I went to a church and you know all of the all the familiar feelings happened you know I didn't like the you know it was weird you know they sat down through two of the songs and stood up through three of the songs who does that I mean like I was so cynical by the time the pastor started preaching that I wasn't even really hearing what he was saying and something really broke through in my heart and what I realized was is that at the core of it I just wanted to belong again I wanted to feel like I was home again because it was what was missing in my life. I wasn't home anywhere. I didn't belong anywhere. And what I decided in that moment was I said, I want to belong so much that I've got to get over this thing that keeps separating me from people. I've got to, I got to let go of my cynicism. I have to be transparent again. I have to be vulnerable again. Like I can't keep walking into every church like loaded down with armor. I have to be determined to belong again. Listen, I, I want to tell, tell the cynic in the room, you belong here. Like, I, I don't just mean that in a weird, like, hey, you belong here, bro. See you never. You belong here. If God has brought you into this church, I believe you're here this morning for a reason. You might even be mad at me right now. But actually what I want to tell you is you needed to hear this message as much as anyone in this room. And I'll tell you, I was really mad before I got healed because I wanted to be angry. I wanted to stew in that. I wanted that righteous feeling that I was better than they were. I know different than they do. But I want to remind you, what's your goal? Our goal isn't to be right. Our goal is Jesus. Amen. Mom, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that church isn't about the flawed people in the room. I thank you that church isn't about isn't about flawed leaders. It's not about it's not about perfectionism. It's not a show. I thank you that church is family. It's your family. It's about you and your glory. It's about you and what you're building. It's about you and your sacrifice. It's about you and your goodness. We're not here for us. We're here for you. Lord, I pray for every person in this room this morning. 
I specifically, I'm going to pray for two people. The first person I want to pray for is the hurt and the disillusion. The one that every time I talked about church hurt, it literally felt like you kind of got stabbed again. Listen, if you're in the room this morning and you realize, man, I've kind of been that guy. I, I got hurt in church. You know, maybe it was 10 years ago. Maybe it was five minutes ago. Whatever it was, I want to encourage you this morning that the Holy Spirit is able and willing to heal you right now. He is able to heal that abuse. He's able to heal that wound. He's able to heal those words that were spoken over you by somebody who didn't know what they were saying and they said it anyway. He is willing and able to heal every wound in your heart so that you can feel home again in His presence and in the, in the congregation of His people. If that's you this morning, I want to pray for you today. If you just lift your hand, if you just experienced some church hurt and you're like, I, I want to get out of this. I want to get out of the cynicism. I want to get out of the pain. I want, to, I, want to, I want to be able to think about those leaders or those people and not just think of hatred towards them. I want to be able to bless them. I want to be able to forgive them. Thank you very much. Heavenly Father, right now for every person in this room, for every person in this room that has experienced that harm, that has experienced what it, what it really means to be led by flawed people, what it means to be in community with people that are not perfect. Lord, I pray for the wound, the wound that has been imparted on them, the things that have been spoken to them. Right now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would heal those areas. Lord, I, I pray that you would take the sting out of those, uh, out of those memories. You take the sting out of those experiences. God, I, I, I pray for for every person who feels like their past has been poisoned because of what's happened in the Lord. We take the poison right now out of the well of their history with you. Right now, we take it out, just like we're, like we're, like we're taking, a, taking a venom out of a snake bite wound. God, right now, we pray that every well would come back, Lord, that the history would come rushing back. The purity and the preciousness of what you did in their lives would not be tainted or marred by the work of man in Jesus name and if you're here this morning and you have not ever said yes to Jesus or maybe you realize that you've been kind of you've been sort of in a far off place and today's your day to come back to the Lord if that's you you've never said yes to Jesus or you realize you need to come home today I want to pray with you I want to pray with you today is if there's anybody in the room, just raise your hand so I can see. I really would love to pray with you this morning. Anybody this morning? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I see that hand. Anybody else this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you today. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for his, his sacrifice on our, on our behalf. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So Lord, right now, this morning, we thank you for the day of salvation. We thank you that no matter how far we've gone, no matter how, how, uh, how, how far we've, we've, we've wandered from you, Lord, that you are always willing and able to call us home. So Lord, we thank you this morning for salvation. We're so grateful for what you're doing and we praise you in Jesus' good name. Amen.